0: student day and president. There is no listening guy. All right. Well, I just wave your hand and I can do that. All right. Well, I love John chapter 11 so much. So I have been bursting at the seams to get here and stand here and talk about it with you. Um, Yeah, good stuff. So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer and we will dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, I thank you that it is proven to us again and again um, what you say about it, that it's living and active, and that it still speaks to your people today, that as we read, we experience a living Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that as we walk through this beautiful chapter today, that you would just um, open our eyes to the hope that we have and the resurrection of Jesus and the life that we get to look forward to in the new heaven and the new earth. (laughs) And um, I know there are women in this room who even now are grieving the loss of someone. And so these words hit um, in a very, very personal, tender way. And so I pray your Holy Spirit would be the comforter this morning. I pray these words would be um, a life preserver for those who may feel like they are very much drowning in grief or who are walking alongside someone who is drowning in grief. We love you. We love you so much. And we thank you for this time together. May it stir our affections for Christ, and may it move us out into the world where we can show his love and tell his story to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so we are in John chapter 11. We'll get a little bit into chapter 12, but we're going to spend the majority of our time walking through John chapter 11. <clears throat> so if you want to go ahead and turn there. But I'm going to start with a story. It's actually a news article I came across many, many, many years ago. Back in the summer of 2007, 21-year-old Ben Carpenter of Paw, Michigan, was leaving a gas station buckled into a wheelchair, minding his own business, trying to cross the street, when the handles of his wheelchair, somehow, none of the articles explain exactly how, but somehow got lodged in the grill, the front grill of a semi-truck. The truck driver could not see him. He had no idea that this had happened, and so he proceeded to travel west on Red Arrow Highway at speeds of approximately 50 miles per hour. People saw this and called 911. And the police initially thought the report was a prank until they started receiving more calls about the situation. The truck traveled for an estimated four miles with Ben Carpenter and his wheelchair attached to its grill. When the police approached the driver and told him of the man in the wheelchair, he thought they were joking. (laughs) Ben Carpenter, still sitting in the wheelchair perfectly fine, offered this commentary on the situation. And this is a direct quote from the article. It was a wild ride. (laughs) I bet it was. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I hope he was one of those daredevil types. Well, this is one of those stories that you come across and you're like, oh my gosh, how could that have happened? It's hard to believe. But it's also one of those stories that is not hard to allegorize. It's quite the metaphor for life, if you think about it. You're going along, minding your own business, already handicapped from what you've endured thus far. Making it work, hoping for the best, and then out of nowhere something else happens. It could be a diagnosis, a financial crisis, a betrayal, a death. There's no shortage of unexpected semi truck level trials that we could fill in that blank. And all of a sudden, you find yourself stuck on a ride that you never would have signed up for, going who knows where for how knows long. And all cute Christian platitudes aside, this is real life. And because this is real life, you and I desperately desperately need real hope, which is exactly what we find in John chapter 11. So let's go ahead and take a look. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Now when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So he went ahead and healed him. No. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed. Two more days in the place where he was. Then, after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. All right, let's stop there. Let's see what we've got so far. We are introduced to three characters that have thus far not been mentioned in the Gospel of John. Did you notice, though, it kind of reads as though he assumes we know who they are? And again, John's gospel was written the latest of the four. So by this time, these were pretty well-known characters. It's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha of Bethany. And what I want to draw your attention to is the focus on how Jesus felt about these three. What word is used to describe Jesus' feelings? It's used in verse 3 and in verse 5. Love, love. It's actually mentioned again in verse 36, which we'll look at in a little bit. I think one of the reasons why John is so clear about Jesus' deep affection for these three, and it is a standout feature of the passage, just how much he loved them. I think the reason is because Jesus' behavior on the surface does not seem very loving. Certainly not in the way we would define love. Now we have seen Jesus heal the sick. We have even seen him heal from a distance. We know that he doesn't even have to be there in person. And certainly he could have done that for Lazarus. Now do Mary and Martha, do they have the faith to believe that he could do that? Yes they do. Oh yes they do. They both say the exact same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. They believed he could heal. So on the divine side, we know that Jesus has the ability. On the human side, we know Mary and Martha have the faith. And so it appears as though the two important boxes are checked. But verse 6 clearly states that when Jesus heard the news, he stayed where he was, whether it was while the messenger was on the way or whether it was during the time period Jesus stayed, Lazarus, he dies. Now, I want you to take a look. I will skip ahead a little bit. Don't worry, we're going to cover all the other stuff. But stick ahead, skip ahead a little bit to verse 37 because there's a question the onlookers ask that I think is really significant for us. Verse 37, but some of them, those were the people that had observed um, the whole scene with Mary and Jesus and all that, the very, very emotional scene. They said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? (laughs) And I, I love that this question is here. I love that it's here. This is a perfect example of the Bible's uncanny ability to voice what I am thinking but am too afraid to say out loud (laughs) because it's not spiritual and it's very lacking of faith. This, in fact, is spoken as an accusation. Couldn't he? So how do we reconcile the fact that Jesus loved them with the fact that he purposely, intentionally didn't go to them in the hour of their greatest need. Because from a purely human vantage point, it looks as though he's let them down. And all God's people said, been there. Right? To hold in the realities of what God could do, And what God actually does is among the greatest challenges of faith. What we know to be true about God's love and care for us and what feels true as we navigate those hard seasons of life, those two things can be worlds apart. Couldn't he heal the cancer? Couldn't he provide the money? Couldn't he make the addiction just go away? Couldn't he soften the heart of that person you've been praying for for years and years and years? Couldn't he expose the abuser? Couldn't he give that sweet couple who's been trying so hard, couldn't he give them a baby? I want you to take another look at verse 4. Let's read it again. It's really important. When Jesus heard the news about Lazarus, he said, this sickness will not end in death. But what is it for? He tells us straight up. The glory of God. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now skip down to verse 11. Gives us a little more insight into why he has chosen the timetable he's chosen. Jesus said this, and then he told his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. (laughs) The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's sleeping, why are we doing this? Because it's really dangerous for Jesus to travel back to that region. Like, if he's asleep, let's just uh, stay put, right? Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, I'm glad, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there because what's going to happen as a result of this? They are going to believe their faith is gonna grow now I want to be careful here <laughs> I want to make sure we understand that this is this is not an attempt to fully resolve the the, the tension of those couldn't he questions in fact we don't find um, an explanation anywhere in scripture we don't we don't have like a B C and D here's why God does certain things and why he doesn't do other things we don't we don't know but we are given this paradigm shifting insight into how God loves his own here it is the love of God is not a pampering love it is a perfecting love the love of God is not a pampering love, it is a perfecting love. It's a love that gives us eyes to see what we otherwise could never see. It's a love that seeks to meet the needs we're too distracted and numb to even know we have. It's a love that gives us something way better than answers and explanations and solutions It gives us Jesus himself. It reveals his glory. Let's pick up in verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. So many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So there's, there's a crowd gathered here. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. So it's like she's saying, I'm so sad you weren't here. But, but I, I believe, I believe, I still believe. <laughs> but, but, you know, she's, she's wrestling there. So the four days is significant because in Jewish thought, uh, they believe that the spirit of a dead person kind of hung around, hovered over the body for three days after death. So, uh, but that spirit would depart on the fourth day, so by delaying, Jesus was able to ensure that no one could mistake this as a mere resuscitation. This is a full-blown, no-holds-bar miracle that nobody else could have done, and so part of that delay was ensuring that God gets maximum glory for this, which was the whole point in the first place. You see the sisters' personalities a little bit here. If you've studied um, scenes with Mary and Martha and some of the other gospels, Mary gets right up and she heads toward Jesus, or Martha gets right up. Um, Mary's the more quiet, contemplative, I think emotional one. She kind of stays where she is. Um, so you kind of see that contrast there a little bit. And you can sense that tension we talked about with Martha's statement. So she's, she believes Jesus could have healed her brother, She's grappling with why he didn't. But her statement in verse 22 shows us that she is resolved to keep trusting. And that, I think, is so instructive for us. She believed Jesus could have. She's grappling with why he didn't. But in that grappling with, in that wrestling, in those questions, you can tell she is resolved to keep on trusting. Her eyes are fixed on what she knows to be true about Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And it's such a blessing when you're in a place of grief and someone throws a theological concept at you to cheer you up. <laughs> oh. Martha had her theology straight. She's looking ahead to the new heavens and the new earth. When the dead in Christ will rise and all things will be made new. And that's what she's thinking Jesus is referring to. Yes, my brother will rise again. And yes, when we're grieving the death of a loved one in Christ, that is such, such a hopeful truth. But take a look at what Jesus says next. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, that, talk about a loaded statement. It's a profound statement about who Jesus is and what he has come into this world to accomplish. And, of course, I am incredibly tempted to take you all the way back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are denied access to the tree of life. That was the tree in the smack in the center of the garden. They could eat of that tree as much as they wanted and enjoy the life-giving presence of God and live forever and ever but they choose to eat from the tree that leads to death. Unfortunately, we don't have have time to trace that theme, but what we need to understand from a whole Bible perspective is that what Jesus is saying here has cosmic implications. The entire fall of mankind, the exile from Eden, the great... Enemies of sin and death, which no human has ever been able to cure. It is all remedied in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the tree of life. He is the resurrection and the life. But you have to eat of its fruit in order to experience this life, which is why Jesus asks an essential question at the end of verse What does he ask her? Do you believe this? And you know, you look at John's purpose statement in John 20, 31. And so he's writing this into the narrative because Jesus actually did ask her that question. But he would intend that we put ourselves in Martha's shoes and hear that question directed toward us. Do you believe this? And look at at her response. It's the most stunning expression of Jesus' identity in the entire gospel, verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. It's almost verbatim from John's purpose statement in chapter 20, verse 31, the whole point by which he, he writes the entire gospel. This is the testimony he wants all of us to have. And let me point out that once again, John has called a woman as a key witness in his gospel. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. And they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him... She fell at his feet. Interesting, everywhere you see Mary. And when Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. All right. Such a tender scene, isn't it? Jesus' emotion here has puzzled interpreters. And it's puzzled them for a couple reasons. Um, One of them is just the reality of what Jesus knew. I mean, if Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus, if he knew the purpose of Lazarus' death, if he knew how many would come to believe because of it, I mean, he's able to see all things well. Why was he so emotional? Another puzzling thing is that the words deeply moved and troubled imply not just a sadness, but an intensity that would be anger. We would, we would read as, as anger, and so... You mix that component in, and it just it's a little bit, it's a little bit puzzling. So if it's puzzling to you, don't, don't feel bad. It's puzzling to the really smart guys <laughs> that write all the books as well. I was thinking a lot on, okay, well, why, if it, if it means anger, why do they translate it deeply moved in spirit and trouble? And I think what the interpreters that have to wrestle, man, they have to wrestle with these. Questions of like, how do we interpret that? How do we translate into English? I mean, the decision's not always easy. And I, I think the reason why they don't use the word angry is, is because it seems as though John actually builds an interpretation into the narrative. And this is something that I've never really thought about before. Um, but look again at verse 36. So the Jews, the people who were firsthand witnesses of this scene, of the emotion, of Jesus' weeping, of Mary's weeping, of everything that took place there, of which we have a very tiny little sliver, right? What did they think it meant? See how he loved him. He, he loved him. It seems to me that what John wants the reader to take from this display of emotion is quite simply that Jesus weeps because those he loves are weeping. Compassion, yeah. His dear friend is dead. I mean, go back to the beginning. Death wasn't supposed to be a thing, you guys. So if there is anger there, and and, and that's part of the nuance of the word? Could he not also just be righteously angry that death is in this world that God created, right? But more than anything, this is an expression of Christ's compassion. It shows us that grief over death is an appropriate response, even when we know death is not the end. And I want you to notice this, Jesus' different responses to Martha and Mary. With Martha, he's got this really intense theological conversation going on. With Mary, he's just crying. Jesus didn't always come at people with truth. Sometimes he came with tears. (laughs) And as someone who loves to speak truth, I want to get better at knowing when tears are the more appropriate response. I'm often guilty of too many words, not nearly enough weeping. There's a lot of people in our lives that are all jacked up theologically. And we want to set it straight. And what they need is for us to just sit and cry with them. Because a lot of times they're jacked up theologically because they're wrestling with the couldn't he? Couldn't he have? They need our tears. And a lot of times our tears are what earn us the right to share the truths. I think that's a beautiful lesson we have. Written into the story as well, one that I need to be reminded of often. Verse 38 Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, There is already a stench because he has been dead for days. This is one of the verses that the King James Version just, I love it. Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) Martha, so practical. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd now standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. He wanted the people there to connect what was going on with his relationship to the Father. After he said this, verse 43. He shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound, hand in foot, with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Now, John's going to make a little bit of a big deal. Can you say that, little bit of a big deal? It's probably an oxymoron. He's going to make a kind of a big deal about the linens that Jesus was wrapped in. Very different. So Lazarus, it's not, he's going to die again. This is not a glorified body. He's wrapped in his grave clothes. Jesus are going to be folded, tidy, nice in the tomb. We'll talk more about that when we get there. So he's, he's all wrapped up. He, he comes out and Jesus says, unwrap him and let him go. Wow. That's a big deal. I don't remember if it was in this Group or my Wednesday night group, someone asked why such an incredible miracle is only recorded in the book of John. Why is Lazarus not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? That's a really good question. I did some research on it this week. The best theory that I found is related to the fact that John was written later. Then the other Gospels, so the other Gospels were written very close to when, to, to when Jesus was actually doing all these things. John's was written probably about 1890, um, 90, um, so a little bit later. There would have been a desire on the part of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to protect Lazarus's identity. this miracle led to a significant amount of conflict. In fact, we're told explicitly in um, 12, 9, and 10 that the chief priest wanted to kill Lazarus because of this. So, Lazarus was likely, by the time John wrote, he was probably dead. And that gave John more freedom than Matthew, Mark, or Luke to describe the event and to write extensively about it. That obviously is speculation because we can't ask We don't exactly know, um, but I thought that was a really solid um, explanation as to why. So here's what we do know for sure is that this sign vividly illustrates what Jesus just said. So he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he follows it up with this sign, and it's this vivid illustration of that reality, and it foreshadows two really important things. One is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And two is the resurrection of all believers from the dead. And both of those things are inseparably linked, right? That's why Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are wasting our time. We are to be pitied more than anyone. Everything hinges, everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ the bodily, bodily resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing this passage is calling us to do on a real practical level, like what's the application here? What do, what do we what do we take with us? Well, it's calling us to embrace a perspective on death that is firmly rooted in the promise of eternal life. That's firmly rooted in the reality of a bodily resurrection, not just of Christ but of us as well. For the believer, and we know this, we know this, but it's worth. Reminding ourselves, death doesn't have the final word. We read in verse 11 where Jesus refers to Lazarus' death as sleep, and it really confuses the disciples. Well, if he's asleep, why are we going? What's interesting is that Paul uses the same image in First Thessalonians 4 to describe believers who have died. Prior to Christ's return, First Thessalonians 4:13 says, "We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope." He doesn't say, "Don't grieve." That'd be really dumb. You will be a ball of depression and anxiety and all things if you don't grieve. <laughs> but he says, "We grieve differently. We grieve differently than the world." Because we have hope. A lot of you are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis' Chronicle of Chronicles of Narnia series. I bet a lot of you read it with your kiddos at some point. I tried. Neither of my boys loved it. And I'm trying to be okay with that. All right. I love how the series ends. Spoiler alert. Cover your ears if you don't want the spoilers. At the end of the final book, all of the characters die in a railway accident. And Lewis concludes with these words, But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. But for them... It was the only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one. That came before. Is that not the best ending? So good. And how differently we would encounter life and process death if we really believed that all of our losses, all of our disappointments, and all of our victories, just the, it's just the cover and the title page. The real story, the real story will go on and on for all eternity. We've talked a little bit about how we've bought into a very um, platonic view of heaven that we're escaping this earth we're going to some ethereal reality up in the sky Um, and what I I say we, like the church at large in the middle ages that kind of seeped in and it's kind of hung around for a long time but if you really look at scripture this this earth is going to be made new and we're like going to live a real life here with God each other and like, we're probably going to like go on trips and we're going to eat the best vegan food you've ever could possibly imagine. I don't know if we'll be eating animals anymore. I don't know. But this new, but there'll be pasta and bread, you guys. That's all I need. That's all I need. Amen and amen. But it's a beautiful reality and it really is true. The real story doesn't even start until that day when the new heavens and the new earth happen. I think that might be our next study. I don't know. We'll see. All right. I just, I'm so fascinated by that. And I can't believe I was stinking 40 years old before I realized that I don't have to go up into the sky and sing in a choir for the rest of eternity. I was having a very hard time being excited about that, you guys. I'm really excited about heaven now. So, all right. But that's totally beside the point. Let's move on. I told you last week that chapter 11 was going to be a major turning point in the gospel. And hopefully as you were reading, you picked up on that. And here's why. Look at verse 45. Like, we're like, whoa, Jesus! And they were not, not all of them were thinking that. (laughs) Okay? Verse 45. Therefore... Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some of them were little tattletales, okay? Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council, it's getting serious, And we're saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And this is so fascinating. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you don't know anything. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And I love that John gives this commentary. Like, he's like, okay, I don't want you to miss that. (laughs) He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not just for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted. To kill him. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his disciples. And from chapter 13 all the way up to his arrest, it's just going to be private conversations that he has with his disciples. So the stage is now officially set for the arrest. The mock trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, which is why chapter 12 serves as a real transition um, as well, kind of joined with chapter 11. And in chapter 12, we have, it's a chock full of these references to the crucifixion. It's like John wants us to know, okay, we are like really heavy duty on the road to the cross here. It's coming. It's coming quick. All right, so I want to point some of those key references out to you Um, the first one would be Mary's anointing of Jesus's feet with that expensive perfume to Judas it seems like a huge waste but Jesus sees it very differently doesn't he in fact Jesus says in chapter 12 verse 7 leave her alone she has kept it for the day of my burial you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. That's huge. That's huge. Now, something really cool happens in verse 17 and following that I want to point out to you. So right before what I'm about to read is the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Verse 17 says, meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. So they're all talking about what Jesus had done. And this is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world. The world. So John has already been building this into his narrative big time. Had, we have Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We have the famous verse, John 3 16, for God so loved just the Jews. No, the world. The world. And this was this this conversation with Nicodemus is directly followed by Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. Right? So he's he's actually going outside the little Jewish territory and he's engaging in conversation. Um, At the end of that scene, many from her town believe in the Messiah, so the word is spreading the world, the world is hearing. Later, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the Jews, the world, the light of the world in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, right? In John 10, 16, we didn't have time to read it last week, but Jesus says this, he says, "I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock with one shepherd." You know what we call that? We call it the universal church of Jesus Christ. One flock, one shepherd. So in twelve nineteen, when it's they say, "Look, the world has gone after him." It's happening. It's happening. Now, if your Bible is like mine, there's a section division between verses 19 and 20. But those two verses are supposed to slide right into each other. Because look what happens. They say, look, the world has gone after him. And then verse 20, now some Greeks. Some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. And so they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, sir, we want to see Jesus. And I think Philip was like, is that okay? Is that allowed? And so he goes to, um, he goes to Andrew, who's kind of like the bring people to Jesus guy. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So I just, John is the coolest writer. I just love his writing. The Pharisees are like, wow, the whole world's coming to him. And like literally the world is coming. The Greeks the Greeks are like, we want to see him. We want to see him. And it's weird because they kind of fade into the narrative. Like, you don't, you don't know what happens. You're like, did they get to see him? Did they not get to see him? I don't know. But then if you keep reading your Bible, what you see is that the entire New Testament assumes the full inclusion of Gentiles into the church of Jesus Christ. So they don't go away. They're absorbed into the story. And it's part of the beautiful design of God from the beginning of time. It's beautiful. In verse 23, Jesus starts to explicitly predict his crucifixion. In no uncertain terms, verse 23, Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Whoa! How many times have we heard Jesus say, the hour is not yet here? (laughs) Over and over and over, and now it's like, oh, okay, it's here. It's come. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So much there. We don't have time to cover it. But what a, what a, what a hard description of what it means to be a Christ follower. Now my soul is troubled. From what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. And the crowd was like, what was that? Verse 30, Jesus responded, this voice came not for me but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. And then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus answered, not their question. <laughs> he totally didn't answer their question at all. He starts talking about light and darkness again. Now, I told you I was going to try to work in the Son of Man thing at some point. And I told you to watch the Bible Project video, and hopefully some of you did. But this is a great spot for us to turn to Daniel chapter 7 and take a really surface, quick look at how loaded this title is. So they ask, who is the Son of Man Daniel chapter 7, let's take a look at this particular title. Now, there's some weird stuff in this chapter you're going to want to know what it means. I am not going to tell you. You can go <laughs> You can go look up what all these beasts mean and all that. I want to focus on the connection to Jesus. All right, so Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 1. Daniel, by the way, is exiled in Babylon. He is having to serve under, um, gosh, an evil regime, very godless. Verse 1 In the first year, King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. And he wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. These beasts, I'm not going to identify specifics, but basically they they represent the violent, prideful kings and their empires, right? The first was like a lion but had eagle's wings, and I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet. Whatever was left, it was different from all the beasts before it. It had ten horns. And notice he doesn't relate this to an animal. I think it was just so beyond description. There's nothing to really compare it to. Verse 8, while I was considering the horn, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly, in this horn, there were eyes, like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who is that? It's God. It's God. His clothing was white. Like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire, and a river of fire was coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were open. So the courts of heaven. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. I continued watching. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching the night visions and suddenly one like... A son of man. And simply what that means is a human, not a beast, a human was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. And you know those thrones that were set up? He gets one. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that, unlike those evil kings and their empires, will never, ever be destroyed. Here's the crazy thing. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He didn't refer to himself as the Messiah. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. And the crazy thing is, at what point, according to Jesus, according to the language he uses, at what point does the Son of Man attain this prize position? When is he lifted up and exalted? It's in his death. It's in his death on the cross. Jesus viewed the cross as his throne. His execution was his exaltation, which is why he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified or enthroned. I mean, come on. Daniel chapter 7 is all over this. And if we don't understand John's perspective on the cross, and which is Jesus' perspective on the cross, it's enthronement. It's royal. And the authors of sort they play around with this, don't they? They talk about the purple robe they put on Jesus. They talk about the crown of thorns. They talk about the sign that's put on the cross, Jesus, king of the Jews. And all of that, there's so much irony there, right? Because they thought they were mocking him. And actually, he's taking his rightful place alongside the ancient of days. He is the son of man who is given the right to rule and reign the earth. Wow. It's so beautiful. Jesus rules the world in a way that is just the utter and complete opposite of any ruler That is ever ruled. Jesus rules the world in the power of sacrificial service, radical humility, and self-giving love. Jesus rules the world when the power of sacrificial service, radical humility, and self-giving sacrificial love. Which, guess what? is exactly what you and I have been called to do as his followers. That has been the plan for humanity since the very beginning of time when God called them to rule and subdue the earth. How do you rule and subdue the earth God's way? Sacrificial service, radical humility, and self-giving love. And in the chapters that remain... Which, oh my goodness, they are so precious. Jesus shows His disciples what that sacrificial service, radical humility and self-giving love, what it looks like. And it's so good. And it's so challenging, <laughs> because I don't know about you, but those three things don't come naturally to me in any way. But that's what it means to be a Christ follower. <laughs> so I'm excited. Any questions? Anything I said that you were like, eh, I didn't get all that. I can repeat. Any questions about the text? We didn't cover every verse. but Oh, did you guys, those of you who studied Isaiah with me, did you notice how John picks up on Isaiah 6? He says, Isaiah actually saw Jesus. Jesus is the one lifted up. So cool, right? So cool. Anybody, questions before I close? All right. Well, as you sit in your groups, you guys know the drill. You can um, talk about, like, one thing that stood out to you uh, from the passage. You can continue to talk about your homework. With group leaders, it is your call. But I think you could have a rich discussion just sharing the, the thing you'll, you'll take away. All righty?